Uh, speak to us now, uh, not because we deserve it, but because we need it, because we know that we don't live by bread alone, but we live by every word that comes from you. So speak words that give us life now, I pray in your name. Amen. So uh, we're in the series on Hebrews. Hebrews, as the slide says, it's all about Jesus. Um, and then the writer to Hebrews is really helpful sometimes. So, whoops, that's not what I wanted to show you. What I want to show you is this. Uh, what is the main point of everything the writer of the Hebrews has been saying? We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. So the main point is that Jesus is our high priest. That's it. That's the main point. To which you might say, well, why is that so important? Why is it so significant that he's the high priest? What's the big deal? Uh, And in fact, many of your friends would say, or you may even say yourself, if you're not particularly religious, you'd go, well, hang on, I'm... What's the big deal about a priest? I don't need a priest. I'm pretty content with who I am. I'm just a happy, secular Australian. I don't need all this religion stuff. Uh, You might even say to yourself, well, actually, look, religion's really bad. Um, At the French Enlightenment, uh, there's this very famous statement by one of the French French Revolution who said, "Uh, we'll only really be free when the last king is strangled with the entrails of the last bishop. You know, that really only when you've, when you've got rid of all kingly authority and all religious authority, then we'll be free. But the book of Hebrews says, hang on, actually, uh, the main point of this whole letter, and actually what's massively important for us, is that Jesus is our high priest. So why? Why is that important? Uh, and how, what does that matter for us? Uh, well, I want to make this point right up the front, and you may never have thought about it, um, uh, We are all religious. Have you ever thought about that? Uh, We're all religious beings. Uh, Your friends are all religious. Your friends who deny that they're religious actually are still religious. Uh, What do I mean by that? Well, um, this is really a picture of us, isn't it? Uh, So, in every human being, throughout the world, there is a sense that the purely material reality that we exist in, the the world that we can touch, taste, see, smell, feel, that this isn't enough, that there must be something more, there must be something on the other side of this material reality. We all feel that. We all have a sense inside of us that we long for for this transcendent thing on the other side of this material world to somehow connect with us because deep inside of us we know that, that the material world doesn't fill us up. It doesn't fill this hole inside of us, right? Um, we just, we know that. It's a given. Uh, and I'll tell you what. Um, we look to all kinds of other experiences and things to connect us with that transcendent other to fill up that hole. So sometimes, I'll, sh- I'll tell you how this works. Sometimes we think, well, you know, the real competitors to, the, to Christianity or our real competitors in the religious marketplace are the Muslims or the Buddhists or the Hindus 
or, uh, you know, the Taoists, or the Presbyterians, or the Pentecostals, or whatever it is. Let me tell you, not really. Uh, let me tell you, even in, in a suburb like Roselle, or Balmain, or the Inner West, um, those aren't the real competitors to, to Christianity. The real competitors are all the temples and the shrines that line up and down uh, Darling Street. Have you noticed them? Have you noticed all the temples? They're everywhere. And, and if you were here earlier today, or if you went to a local mall or a local shopping strip in, in the suburb, maybe where you've come from, Glebe or wherever it is, you know, um, and you walked down, you would see temples with worshippers in. And all the way up and down Darling Street, there were people, uh, you know, going into these temples, approaching an altar, approaching reverently a, a priest or priestess in distinctive clothing. And, and you'd bring your offerings, you'd place your offerings on the altar, and then the priest or the priestess would get something from the temple that the gods would provide and would give this thing to you, and you would take it back into your life, and your possession of this thing would, would meet that little gap, that little hole, and connect you with the transcendent reality. Now, sometimes when you go to worship, you, you also have to wear special dress, Right, so um, one of the a very popular temple in Balmain, or shrine, is at the temple of Lululemon, and uh, so uh, it, it does. I clarified it does also sell menswear, active wear, but you know when you go to when you go to worship at Lululemon, uh, uh, what what you do is you you wear your distinctive dress, you approach one of the uh, one of the priestesses or the priests, and uh, and what they what they what are they selling you? When you, when you give them your offering of, you know, $200, what do you get in exchange? Plastic. And what? A yoga mat, also made out of plastic. Uh, but what are you really getting at Lululemon? Status? Stuff? A promise. What's the promise you're getting? This will enrich, this, as you, as you consume this brand, you're going to get in touch with the life that really is life, something that connects with you here that says you're going to be flexible and fit and cool and attractive and, and you know, you're going to live forever. But of course, you know, it doesn't really work, does it? <laughs> you go, it's not just Lululemon, that's, the, that's just one I happen to pick on because I like the brand. Um, coffee shops up and down here, they're, they're little shrines, they're temples. And what is the God that you're worshipping in the coffee shop? Sorry, the elixir of life? Caffeine itself. Well, you, you, our, Paul, the Bible says our God is our stomach. So what you're worshipping is, is sensory experience and consuming this thing that tastes good, that feels good, that changes your brain chemicals, enables you to go high. If you've got to exercise after a coffee shop, you're going to get a you know, 10 to 20% lift in your performance just as a result of the caffeine. And you consume all of this stuff because what you're really after is an experience of the divine, of the transcendent. Uh, here's because... Uh, here's the thing, right? Um, no matter how good the coffee was that you had today, what are you going to need tomorrow? Coffee, more coffee. No matter how great you look in your Lululemon activewear today, 
you know it's going to wear out. You might outgrow it even, you know, perish the thought um, or perish the gear. Uh, you know it's going to wear out. It, it doesn't last. The mercies of coffee are not new every morning. Lululemon is unable to actually fill that gap in our souls. It's the same with, you know, I mean, one of the great global brands, Apple. Um, I have to tell you, you know, I'm a good father. It's Father's Day. I just want everybody to know what a great dad I am. Uh, I'll tell you why. I'll tell you the most loving thing I think I've ever done for my, uh, for, <laughs> for my daughter. Yeah, <laughs> for my daughter. Yeah. Oh, sucks to be son. Uh, anyway, so Freya, as you all know, Freya's gone on exchange. Well, you may not all. My daughter has gone on exchange for six months, five and a half, six months to Reunion Island. And before she left, we had this long discussion, and she had an old iPhone 5C, and the camera was really lousy, and it didn't have much memory. So she said, oh, Dad, you know, I need a new phone. I need a new camera. I said, you know what I did? What's the most supreme act of love that one can do in our contemporary culture? I violated the natural order of things, and I gave her my iPhone 6, and I took her 5C. I, you know, it's not the way it's meant to be, uh, but I did it because I'm just that kind of a guy, and it's killing me. <laughs> so I can't wait for September the 12th. Do you know why? That's when the iPhone 8 is released. That's it. So I'm, I am living in hope. And I know when I purchase the iPhone 8 that that hole, that gap that's here, that will be filled. I will be a complete whole person. Never because I will have, I will have captured in Apple the sense of the divine, the transcendent reality that's going to make... Will I really? <laughs> no. Because it'll wear out. It'll be superseded. I mean, it's not a Samsung, so it won't blow up in my pocket. But, you know, it, yeah. Uh, it'll, oh, it actually might, but, you know. We're all religious. We're all searching and searching and searching. You see, classically, in human history, what we did was we, we just, the world was just the world, but everyone gave expression to this religious desire in overt organized religion. You went to church, you went to the temple, you went to mosque. Since we've pushed that overt organized religion away, it's just been supplanted by secular religion, which is consumption. That's the great move of the last 200 years, post-enlightenment consumption. The brands have realized they can fill that hole and make an enormous amount of money doing it. But it's the same impulse. We're all religious. We're all trying to cross that gap and find that thing that will actually meet our needs. Now, uh, when I do this, I enter into... Uh, when, when I'm trying to cross the gap, this is what it looks like. I'll, I'll, I'll do a drawing for you here because I can, because I'm such a good artist. Uh, here we go, you know. Um, here's me. And uh, there's this great big gap. And on the other side of it is uh, this transcendent reality. And when I'm trying to fill that gap in my life, what I'm really trying to do, I enter into an exchange relationship or a contractual relationship with reality. And this is how it works. It says, I 
will, uh, I, will, I will do my work to cross this gap and bridge that divide as long as and until that thing that I'm reaching out to meets my needs, right? So there's a quid pro quo. Y you know how it works. Uh, I'll go to this coffee shop until the barista changes and now the coffee's not good. Or, uh, and so I'll go to the next one because it's no longer met my needs. Uh, in classic religion, this same, so this is this same relationship of uh, contract or exchange works. So now you see in classic religion, I want to bridge that gap. I do what I do. And then if I'm good enough, the divine will give me what I need. Does that make sense? We all do that. There's some problems with that approach to life, which we'll get into in a moment. But over and against that, I want to say that Christianity, and in particular this understanding of Jesus as the high priest, is the end of this kind of religion. Why it is so important that Jesus is our high priest is because it's a fundamental, it answers all the problems that this model presents for us. The dilemma that we have that no matter how much I reach across the gap, I'll never really get there, and what I get in return is not reliable and life-changing. It's not new every morning. It's limiting, and it fades away. Uh, so let us think about this. The book of Hebrews says Jesus is our great high priest. But more than that, it says right back in the book of Hebrews, do you know what? What in, in, the, what in Christianity, what is it that we discover on the other side of the transcendent gap? Who do we discover there? This is a Sunday school answer. We discover, we don't, we don't find a brand or a vague being. The, the central claim of Christianity is on the other side of that gap, we find Jesus. He is the glory of God, the exact representation and radiance of God. That's how the book of Hebrews starts. So on the other side of this material reality lies Jesus. And you go, well, that's awesome. So now what you've got to do is you've got to work really hard to connect with Jesus, don't you? Well, no, 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 hang on, listen. If Jesus is our high priest, what does that mean? What do priests do? Priests bridge the gap between God who is holy and infinite and human beings who are messed up and finite. So the central, why it is the main point of Hebrews that Jesus is our high priest is because in Christianity, this is what we get. We get Jesus bridging the gap, coming to us, bridging over that gap, and then catching us up in his life and death and resurrection and bringing us over into a deep, profound, life-changing experience of the divine. That's the central claim of Christianity. Now, uh, do you see how different it is from religion? In fact, there are, it, I know it's a bit of a play on words, but in one sense, it has always been understood historically that Jesus and Christianity spells the end of all religion. Because you see here, there's no more having to work, provide our own uh, efforts, our own morality, our own goodness to bridge the gap to connect with God. Now God has come to us. 
So that's why, I don't know if you've ever, if you knew this, do you know that in the ancient world, in Rome, when Christianity started, the Romans considered Christians atheists? Did you know that? They said they were atheists. Well, why? Because you can imagine, this is a, this, I got this from a guy called Dick Lucas, who's a preacher in England, and he, he was preaching the book of Hebrews, and he made this one. He said, imagine, imagine a conversation between a Roman a citizen who's still a pagan and a Roman citizen who's become a follower of Jesus. They'd go up to the Roman citizen, they'd go up to the person who's become a Christian and say, well, so this is fantastic. I mean, Romans loved religions, right? So when Rome conquered a country, they just absorbed all the gods and the religions of that conquered group into their own worldview. So, so they loved religion. As long, any, as long as you, everyone respected everyone else's point of view and everyone else's religion, it was all good, okay? So now... Good old Roman finds his mate. His mate's become a Christian, and he goes to his mate, and he says, listen, wow, this is wonderful. You found a new religion. Tell me a little bit about it. He says, well, it's not really a religion. And so he says, what do you mean? So so the guy says, so tell me, in your your new religion, um, where where do you go to worship? He says, well, we have no temple. Jesus is our temple. Oh, well, where do you go to offer sacrifices? You know, to cross the gap, to, to make God happy. Where do you go to offer sacrifice? Well, we don't offer sacrifices because Jesus is our sacrifice. So, well, tell me who your priests are. Where, where do you get your priests? He says, well, we have no priests. Jesus is our priest. That's no religion. <laughs> you have no temple. You have no sacrifice. You have no priests. Say, no, no, that's right. All those things were a human drive to cross the gap. But in Christianity, God has come in the other direction. Now, just before we get to the text, what that means is our relationship to God is not based on a contract or an exchange. I come to God and I do what's right and good and then God will bless me. It's now based on another concept, another word that captures this. And we heard it in the reading. Can anyone, what sort of relationship characterizes that between us and God now? A covenant. Awesome. Well done, class. It's a covenant. So listen, look at this, hey. Um, This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel at that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and write them in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they say, uh, no longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. It's a covenant. Now, what is, what is true about this covenant? What makes a covenant a covenant? Well, it's radically unconditional, right? So, uh, in a contract or an exchange, it's quid pro quo. I will do X for you as long as you do Y for me, okay? I'll give you my $4 as long as you give me a decent cup of coffee. You don't provide me with a decent cup of coffee, I'll take my 4 bucks and go next door. Now, what's a covenant? Covenant says, I will keep giving you my four bucks even if you never give me anything in return. (laughs) 
which is why we don't enter into covenants with baristas. <laughs> it's a contract, right? But how does it work in life? Think about what's the most common covenant relationship we see lived out in front of us day by day? Human rights, yeah? Marriage. Marriage is a covenant. So what and what characterizes marriage, that blessed institution, um, is that when two people marry, they, need, they say to each other, you know what, I will be faithful to you and I will love you and I will serve you and I will honor you and I will obey you in, you know, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health until death parts us. That is, I will love you and be faithful to you no matter what. Even if you are unfaithful to me, I will be faithful to you. And the other partner to the covenant says, I will love you in sickness and in health for richer, for poorer, until death does does us part. I will love you and serve you no matter what, because that's what a covenant is, right? It's two people being radically, unconditionally committed to each other. And God says... That's how he is going to relate to us, to you. God says to you, I will come and I will live for you and I will die for you. My son Jesus will be your high priest offering sacrifices for you, covering over your sin, bridging the gap for you. And now because of Jesus, there is nothing you can do that can change my love of you and my commitment to you. Nothing you can do. Nothing. God's love for us with Jesus as our high priest is not determined by our faithfulness. It's determined by his faithfulness. It's not determined by our obedience. It's determined by his obedience to his own will. It's not determined by our love of God. It's determined by God's love of us. Do you see the difference it makes? Now, that's really hard to understand. We're all nodding because we're all good and we're in church and we've all got to nod. Let me tell you, understanding the power of a covenantal love goes so against the grain of how we do life. I spend a lot of time talking with people have done for 20 years, lots of married people talking about their marriages, and I read a lot about our society and about our culture. Uh, let me tell you, one of the biggest problems we're facing as a culture is people, people now, people, all of us, find it very hard to relate to each other covenantally. We relate to everyone and everything contractually. That's part of being consumers. So even in marriage, you find marriage is essentially about, conceived in our culture, the emotional well-being of each consenting adult and the implicit message is, I will love you, I will care for you, I will be there for you up until such point as you no longer are emotionally satisfying for me. And then I reserve the right to move on. And that's basically how marriage functions. Why, that's why in our culture we have serial monogamy. Because the idea of staying committed to somebody even when they aren't meeting your needs and maybe won't meet your needs for 10 or 20 years, that's unthinkable. That's about as daft as keeping on giving your barista four bucks when they stop making you coffee. Right? But actually, that's what a covenant is. 
Now, look at this covenant. This covenant that God has with us has some massive implications, right? Look at what it says. The first thing is, uh, this covenant with God, in, this, in the same way that covenants with us uh, create this, this covenant with God uh, creates intimacy between us and God. Look at it. Uh, no longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one to know the Lord. So now in Jesus Christ, you don't have to rely on someone like me saying to you, hey, let me tell you about God. And if you follow everything I say, then you can know a bit about God as I know a bit about God. It's not like that at all, right? What does it say now? No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because what? They will all know me. Ha! Huh. Deep, personal, radical intimacy with God. And that is intimacy that is only possible in a covenant relationship. Right? Let me tell you. Uh, even in, in uh, human relationships, we know that unless we feel completely safe in the unconditional, enduring commitment of the other person to us, it's only when we feel that and know that that we can allow ourselves to be totally vulnerable. If I know that you are only going to love me while I meet your needs, I'm never going to really let my guard down. And I'm never really going to have great intimacy then. But if I know that there is nothing I could do that could stop you loving me, then I can actually let you see me as I am. Wow. Margot and I, my wife, have been married 23 years. Uh... Every year as we go on, I see the truth of this becoming more and more palpable and lived out in front of me. Our marriage gets better year on year. Year on year because I now have 23 years of track record where I know that Margot is unconditionally committed to me. Uh, if she weren't, she would have left a long time ago. <laughs> and she knows that I'm committed to her in that way. Not perfectly, but it's there. So those of us who've been married a long time, we know what that's like. And you go, ah, that's when real intimacy starts to, to work, right? It doesn't happen just like that. That's what it's like with God. Because here's the thing. Uh, the word to know in the, is a very rich word. So in our culture, knowing is essentially, oh, if I know something, it's an intellectual exercise. But in the scriptures, to know someone is what? It's the word that's used in the Hebrew, yada, is means a husband knows his wife, which means becomes completely one with them. Physical, sexual, economic, emotional, social union. That's what it is to know someone. It's to become one flesh, one new entity. That's the level of intimacy that is envisaged. And guess what God says? In my new covenant, because Jesus is the high priest, what what God wants for you and I is that level of knowing deeply, immediately, personally, that we know God and He knows us. So you don't have to just listen to me. I mean, though, you know, please do because it's pretty profound what I'm saying, right? And I'll feel better if you listen to me. But it's not, I'm not the one who's going to connect you to God. It's God who's going to connect you to God. And He wants you to know Him deeply and personally and intimately. Now, that's the first thing, which is incredibly good news. The second thing is, uh, notice this. Um, 
this Jesus is our high priest entering into this covenant relationship with us uh, brings about equality. Okay? Uh, because now, who can know God? Who can know God? All of them, any of them, from the least to the greatest. See, in a contract relationship, in a contract relationship, the richer you are, the more benefit you get, right? Uh, if you're 14 years old, you can only afford an iPhone 5C. When you're 47 and you've got a credit card, you can afford an iPhone 8. <laughs> so I can get more benefit because I'm richer than you. Uh, in, in religious terms, a contract relationship would mean if you're really super moral and super good, then you can get more blessings from God. But that's terrible. I mean, imagine if you're poor and you can't get great stuff. Imagine having to live life with just a crappy phone. You know, you'd miss out on life. Imagine in religious terms, imagine if you really just can't stop lying. You're just a compulsive liar. There are people like that who just, oh my goodness, you know, they, they just can't but bend the truth. Their whole lives they've bent the truth. Does that mean because they are so morally stunted that they can never know the blessings of God? Well, yes, it does. If it's an exchange relationship or a contract. What if you're just chronically selfish? What if you're a pedophile? You know, most pedophiles, when, when you talk, they have a, just a, I mean, even those who don't ever act it out, they have this, this attraction to kids that is, for some of them, deeply problematic, and it never goes away for many of them. And you go, well, you know, if you're that morally and spiritually deformed, how can you ever know God if it's an exchange? Well, if it's a, if it's a covenant, God says, from the least to the greatest can know me. If you're poor or you're rich, you can know God. If, you're, if, you're, um, if you really are morally deeply flawed, or if you're like unbelievably morally together, you can know God. If you're gay or you're straight, you can know God. If you're male or you're female, you can know God, the least to the greatest, slave or free, Jew or Gentile. The, the, the foot of the cross is a level playing field, man. It's open to anyone. We all come into the kingdom of God through the same high priest based on the covenant of grace with us, not because of anything we bring ourselves. So it makes for the most radically equal and inclusive community imaginable. Isn't that incredible? I, I find it, I find that, I don't know, we're all nodding and going, yes, it's, I find that really hard. Because you know, why do I find that really hard, do you think? Why do you think I find that really hard? Well, it's because I like to think I'm better than most people. So I'm going to get more of God than most people. And it's just not true. That's nonsense. <laughs> Isn't that great? And you know what that means as well? Hey, if you really are a mess tonight, and look, let's be honest, we all are. But if you really, if there's a, if there's a, if there's a little bit inside of you that goes, man, if God really knew what was going on here, these thoughts or these struggles or what I'd done, if God really saw, then he'd never accept me. I want to say to you, of course he will. The least to the greatest 
come to the covenant relationship with God. And then finally, uh, the last thing it creates, intimacy, equality, creates community, right? Uh, where, do I, where does it say that? Well, uh, this is the covenant uh, I will establish. Um, I will be their God. Look at it in verse 10. I will be their God, and they will be my voluntary association. They will be my group of persons. Is that right? No, they will be my people. God creates a people, an umuntu, a, a gathering, a people defined as a family. Wow, it's amazing, right? Because of our covenantal relationship with God, that He accepts us unconditionally. You know what God says? He says, what I want to do on earth is I want to create a group of people who live out that same covenantal way of being with each other. So the church is meant to be a working model of this covenant. That means that in the local church, we are meant to love each other unconditionally in the same way that God has loved us. We're to be as committed to each other, the least to the greatest, in the same way that God has committed to us. Isn't that amazing? (laughs) Bring it on. One of the biggest challenges, I think, facing the church in a city like Sydney or elsewhere in the world, in the developed world, one of the biggest challenges is we, our relationships within church become contractual, not covenantal. We, we actually start, because we're so hardwired to see everything as a, con, as a good or service that we consume, we're hardwired to this. It's very hard not to experience church as like a spiritual coffee shop where we come, we put in, And as long as we get out more than we put in, or at least the same, then we'll stick around. But but if we do that, there's no spiritual power, no real healing, no intimacy. And our witness to the gospel of grace is diminished because we actually don't, we behave just like everybody else. There was, um, at this morning down at St. Mary's at our, at the celebration service, there's this beautiful person who's been part of the church, Sylvia, for 92 years. That's pretty neat. I mean, you know, she's never moved. Oh, she moved 100 meters from where she was born into the house that she got married in and, they, and then stayed. And you go, look, 92 years. That's just her community. That's just her church. There have been good rectors. There have been bad rectors. There's been good music. There's been bad music. There have been great people in church. There have been really annoying people in church. There's been conflict in the church. There's been harmony in the church. I mean, this was a church where for a season, before her time, down at St. Mary's, where a bunch of parishioners got jack of the rector, so they, they stopped going to church, started running their own services in the pub across the road, and then used to chuck stones on the roof of the church when the poor rector tried to run his services. I mean, you know, so it's like it's just, you know, but... People stuck at it. Sylvia stuck at it 92 years. Now, there's always a balance here, right? So I think fundamentally this is the body of Christ globally. You are allowed to leave a local church. You'll be pleased to know we're not a cult. Okay, cults try and say, you're never allowed to leave. If really, but but if, if, uh, if over here is a cult... Well, you're never allowed to leave and we'll manipulate you and we'll, you know, if, if here's a cult, 
I'm just I'm struggling with words. Okay. And over here is a voluntary association, church as coffee shop, church as bowling club. Okay, this is the continuum, church as bowling club, church as cult. Where do you think most churches in Sydney are? Most. Keep going this way? No, no, that way? Really? That way? That way? No, that way? Yeah, I'm reckoning that way, hey? I don't know, you know. Well, it depends. It depends, doesn't it? it you just like watch me look at There we go. <laughs> we come here, and then we go here. So, um, that's right. <laughs> For those of you listening online, uh, this latest burst of humor won't have translated well, but you didn't really miss anything. I think... I wonder sometimes that we, we move a little too close to the voluntary association and, and we lose sight of some of the deeper commitment. Because again, it's like in anything, without the commitment, without that covenantal community, uh, no real intimacy is possible. And we can't be known. And we can't, we can't get to the place in church where we actually allow ourselves to be vulnerable. Because <laughs> what if, what if I am vulnerable and you come to church and you go, well, you're not, you're not meeting my needs anymore. I'll go somewhere else where people aren't as annoyingly broken and messed up as in this church, right? <laughs> now, it, it, it's, it's not easy. It's tension. It's not a cult. But I think what God's plan is, is to build deep, rich community, covenantal relationships. And so uh, that's it. I want to ask you this. Um, do you know God like this? Do you know his unconditional love, Jesus as your high priest, living for you, dying for you, bringing you home? And are you developing and learning increasing intimacy with God, increasing equality that we are a radically, you know, open, equal community and we're a thick, covenantal, loving community? Let's pray. Our great God, uh, thank you for your love for us. Thank you that you are our...